I want you to turn your Bibles with me to Numbers chapter 14. The Lord's put on my heart to, uh, to minister this morning on the glory of the Lord. And, um, and there's way too much to cover in just one service. And so I'm already trying to figure out which high spots to hit so that we can make this concise. In Numbers chapter 14... It's the continuation of the story of when the children of Israel, whom God delivered out of Egypt with mighty hand and signs and wonders and miracles, how that they come to the promised land, the edge of the promised land, and Moses picks one person, one representative from each of the 12 tribes of Israel and sends them into the promised land to spy out the land. And you remember the story, I'm sure, how that 10 of them came back with an evil report. Um, That's God's definition. That evil report was that they were expressing doubt, voicing doubt, and speaking against what God had said that he would do. He said that that the land was already given to them and that he would deliver the enemies of Israel into their hands and they would take possession of the promised land. But 10 of the 12 spies came back and said the land is everything God said it was. He said it was the land flowing with milk and honey. And it's, uh, it's just as... As he described, it's a better land than anything we've ever seen before. But there are people in there. And the enemies are strong. They have great armies. Now, God just, just has recently defeated the uh, Egyptian army, which was the strongest army in the face of the earth. But anyway, but despite that, they said, these armies are great. Our enemies are stronger than we are. And uh, they have walls around their cities. And there's just a whole lot of problems with taking this promised land. And so the 10 of them said, we don't believe we can do it. We look like grasshoppers in the sight of our enemies, and that's the way we see ourselves to be. And the Bible says that um, two of them, Caleb and Joshua, gave a different report, how that they said, if God's with us, then the enemies and the armies and the walled cities aren't any problem for us. But we want to start in chapter 14 of Numbers, verse 1. Here's the congregation's reaction or response to the ten spies that brought back the evil report. It said, And all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron. And the whole congregation said unto them, Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt? Or would God we have died in this wilderness? And wherefore has the Lord brought us unto this land to fall by the sword? that our wives and our children should be a prey? Were it not better for us to return unto Egypt? And they said one to another, let us go down the street and start another church. (laughs) That's what this means. Not the church part, but. And they said one to another, let us make a captain and let us return to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, which were of them that searched the land, those are the two uh, spies that had a good report, stayed on God's side. They rent their clothes and they spake unto all the company of the children of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to search it is an exceeding good land. If the Lord delight in us, and that word if is word sense, 
Since the Lord delight in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only rebel ye not against the Lord, neither fear ye the people of the land. For they are bred for us, their defense is departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Fear them not. Apparently it wasn't too late. They could still fix this. But all the congregation bade stone them with stones. And the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of the congregation before all the children of Israel. And the Lord said unto Moses, How long will this people provoke me? And how long will it be ere they believe me for all the signs which I have showed among them? I will smite them with the pestilence and disinherit them and make of thee a great nation and mightier than they. Now the word pestilence here is not sickness. God's saying, I will strike these people and they'll die. See, if God wants to get rid of somebody, why waste the time with sickness? He doesn't need sickness and disease if that's what he's going to do. Now, thankfully, that's not what he does under the new covenant. But where it says that the plague went through the camp and pestilence and different things like that, usually that just means a stroke. God makes a strike or did make a strike against the people that rebelled against him and they lost their lives. He said, I will smite them with a pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of thee a greater nation and mightier than they. He's saying, Moses, get out of the way. I'll do away with all these people and start over with you. And Moses considered carefully. <laughs> no, he didn't. And Moses said unto the Lord, Then the Egyptians shall hear it, for thou broughtest up this people in thy might from among them. And they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land, for they have heard that thou, Lord, art among these people. And thou, Lord, art seen face to face, and that thy cloud standeth over them, and thou goest before them. By daytime in a pillar of cloud, and in a pillar of fire by night. Now if thou shalt kill these people as one man, then the nations which have heard the fame of thee will speak, saying, Because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land, which he swear unto them, therefore he has slain them in the wilderness." And now I beseech thee, let the power of my Lord be great, according as thou hast spoken, saying, The Lord is long-suffering and of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation. Pardon, I beseech thee, the iniquity of this people, according to the greatness of thy mercy, and as thou hast forgiven this people from Egypt even till now. And the Lord said, I have pardoned according to thy word. Folks, I want you to understand, as children of God, which Moses was not, Moses was considered to be a servant because he couldn't have been born again because the work of Jesus hadn't taken place. But as children of God, we have a place with our Father where we can ask things concerning our country, things concerning his plan for our lives, we can talk face to face with God. Now in the old covenant, Moses was about the only one that could do that. At least at that point in time. But that should be a regular place for us to commune with him. So the Lord said, I have pardoned according to thy word, but as truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Because all these men which have seen my glory and my miracles which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have now tempted me these ten times and have not hearkened to my voice, surely they shall not see the land which I swear unto their fathers 
neither shall any of them that provoked me see it. But my servant Caleb, because he had another spirit with him and has followed me fully, him will I bring into this land wherein he went and his seed shall possess it. Now the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valley. Tomorrow turn you and get you into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. And the Lord spake unto Moses and unto Aaron, saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation which murmur against me? I have heard the murmurings of the children of Israel which they murmur against me. Say unto them, here's God telling Moses what to tell the people. Say unto them, As truly as I live, saith the Lord, as you have spoken in my ears, so will I do unto you. Your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness, and all that were numbered of you according to your whole number, from 20 years old and upward, which have murmured against me. Now I want you to notice something. We won't um, read anymore for the sake of time. But I want you to see a couple of things here. The 10 spies bring an evil report of the land or of what they believe their ability to be. And they influenced and convinced the whole congregation of Israel to rebel against God. Now when I say rebel against God, what I literally mean is, and what the story tells us, is they influence them. The ten spies influence the people to reject God's word. And that's rebelling against God. Now people may have different intentions or different reasons for why they reject the word, but for God it's all the same. If we reject his word, if we say, if we take a position in our lives and say that we can't do what God's word says we can do or that we don't have what God's word says we have, that's operating in rebellion against God. Some people do it in ignorance. Some do it on purpose. But that's turning away from God. Turning away from his word is turning away from him. So we just read uh, Caleb and Joshua are trying to get the people to hold steady, but they won't do it. But I want you to notice a couple of verses of scripture. We just read this one in verse 28 where God said, Say unto them, As truly as I live, saith the Lord, if you have spoken in my ear, so will I do unto you. Everybody in this story got what they said. Caleb and Joshua said we could, and they did. We could take the land, they did. They were delayed 40 years to get there, but they went in and took possession of the land. The congregation said we would rather die in the wilderness, and they did. Everybody in this story got exactly what they said. Now notice verse 28 again. Moses is told by God, instructed by God, tell the people, as truly as I live, now that phrase means something. As truly as I live, well, how does a God live? He's eternal. He's establishing an eternal principle. He's saying, this one thing you can be sure of. He establishes a statute and an ordinance. It's an eternal and an unchanging principle. As you have spoken in my ears, so will I do unto you. Now we know God never changes. And when he said here, this is the way that it is based on me, who's eternal and never changes, this is the eternal unchanging principle. I will deal with you as you have spoken in my ears. 
But did you notice another scripture that said that? Back up with me a little bit to verse 21. This is after God pardons them at Moses' request. He decides not to strike them in, in one blow and do away with them. But as soon as God pardons them in verse 20, or declares that he's pardoned according to thy word, notice verse 21. He said, but as truly as I live. Here's another eternal unchanging principle. As truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. All the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Now here's God saying, okay, Moses, I won't do away with them, but they won't go in and take the land. But don't think for a minute that changes my plan. The earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Folks, what I would like to do this morning and impress upon you this morning is the absolute conviction, the absolute reality that God is going to manifest his glory in the earth so that the whole earth is filled therein. Now, this is not the only place where the Bible talks about the earth being filled with the glory of God. It's talked about in several different places. The first place that it shows up or is spoken of is in uh, Exodus. Two places I want you to see. Let me start with verse 40. I'll go out of uh, chronological order here. Verse 40 or chapter 40 of Exodus is um, uh, kind of a summarization. It's an explanation of how God gave the pattern for the tabernacle of the wilderness to Moses and how he put it together and caused it to be built and constructed according to God's plan. Let me start in verse 33. And he reared up the court round about the tabernacle and the altar and set up the hanging of the court gate. So Moses finished the work. Now this doesn't mean it's the first time the tent's been established, but this is God giving him some specific instructions about how the tabernacle should be maintained and uh, where it should be located and so forth as Israel spends their time in the wilderness. So Moses finished the work. Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation, because the cloud abode thereon, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And when the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the children of Israel went onward in their journeys. But if the cloud were not taken up, then they journeyed not until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was upon the tabernacle by day, and fire was on it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Can you imagine the sight that these guys had every day for 40 years? And the Bible talks of, calls that the pillar of cloud by day. And the pillar of fire by night, it calls that the glory of God. Now, the glory of God, the phrase the glory of God, or the word that's used most often for glory in the Old Testament, has uh, kind of an abstract meaning. It means weightiness, it means heaviness, it means splendor. And the idea, the concept, I guess, is that God is so big, He's so powerful. He's so majestic that it outweighs anything and everything else there is. These people saw 
with their eyes. The pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. And still they didn't believe. They wouldn't believe. Now I want you to notice something else here. I want you to see another principle concerning the glory of God. In the Old Testament, God didn't have any problem revealing himself. None whatsoever. He revealed himself every day for 40 years to Israel in this manner. When the cloud moved, they moved with it. When it stayed still, they stayed still. Now, that's a good principle to live your life on. When God moves, you move with him. When God stays put, you stay put. Because being with God is the important issue. So the glory of the Lord on occasion would fill the tabernacle so that they couldn't stand to minister. People couldn't stand. Nobody, even Aaron and those that were tasked with the uh, work of the priesthood couldn't go in. Now the implication is it wasn't always that way. If it had been always that way, then they couldn't go into the tabernacle of the wilderness and change out the showbread and make sure the incense was burning all the time and that kind of stuff. The glory of the Lord was always present. They always saw the cloud or the fire, depending on the time of day. But it didn't always manifest in the same way so that it was filled, the tabernacle was filled to the exclusion of people being able to enter. You understand what I'm trying to say there? Not sure I'm saying it very well, but hopefully you get the gist. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 33 now. We know that when Solomon dedicated the temple, the Bible says that the, the glory of the Lord filled the temple in the same way and nobody could stand and minister. 1 Kings chapter 8, 2 Chronicles chapter 5, I think are the um, references for that. It talks about when Solomon finished every part and every aspect of the plan that God had given David. Remember, David was the one that wanted to build him a temple. But David was a man of war, and so God says, you can't build it. Solomon was king of Israel. He um, followed after David as his son. And because he was the king over peace, the reign of peace, for some 40 years, God instructed him to do it instead of David. And so when Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem and finished the work, they dedicated it by singing, for the Lord is good and his mercy endures forever. And the glory of the Lord filled the, tavern, or filled the temple. And the same thing was true of that instance or event as what we just read in Exodus chapter 40 with the tabernacle in the wilderness. Nobody could stand. He filled the place up so that nobody else could enter. In Exodus chapter 33, Um, how much do I want to read of this? Let's see. Well, let me back up to verse 1. I'll start there and read a few verses and then skip down into the chapter. And the Lord said unto Moses, Depart and go up hence, thou and the people which thou hast brought up out of the land of Egypt, unto the land which I swear unto Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob, saying unto thy seed will I give it. 
And I will send an angel before thee, and I will drive out the Canaanite, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite, unto a land flowing with milk and honey. For I will not go up in the midst of thee, for thou art a stiff-necked people, lest I consume thee in the way. It seems to indicate that God said, I know I'm going to have to love you guys from a distance. Because if I'm around you enough to see what you're doing day by day by day, you're toast. This is part of his promise to Israel about the promised land. Remember he said, or remember the ten spies said specifically, all these Canaanites and Jebusites and Hivites and everybody else are in the land, so we can't take it. God's already told them that they're there. He's already told them that he would defeat them, the enemies of Israel, for them. And when the people heard these evil tidings, they mourned, and no man did put on him his ornaments. For the Lord had said unto Moses, Say unto the children of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. I will come up in the midst of thee in a moment and consume thee. Therefore now put off thy ornaments from thee, that I may know what to do unto thee. And the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by the Mount Horeb. In other words, the children of Israel are saying, we don't like it that God called us stiff-necked. So we're just not going to dress up. Now they made no attempt to change. They made no attempt to conform to what God wanted them to be. Or said they could be. They just get their feelings hurt because God told the truth about them. I guess they couldn't handle the truth. <laughs> Let's skip down a little bit. Let's go to verse 8. And it came to pass when Moses went out unto the tabernacle that all the people rose up and stood every man at his tent door and looked after Moses until he was gone into the tabernacle. And it came to pass as Moses entered into the tabernacle, the cloudy pillar descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle and the Lord talked with Moses. And all the people saw the cloudy pillar stand at the tabernacle door. And all the people rose up and worshiped every man in his tent door. And the Lord spake unto Moses face to face as a man speaks unto his friend. And he turned again into the camp, but his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, departed not out of the tabernacle. Everybody sees that Moses is able to go in to the presence of God where nobody else can. Remember, they've already seen him on the mountain, Mount Zion. I'm sorry, Mount Sinai, where it talked about for 40 days there was blackness and smoke and lightnings and thunders and all kinds of spectacular things. And circumstances surrounding his time up there. So that the people said themselves, nobody can live through that. They used that as an excuse, you remember, for getting Aaron to make the golden calf. And Aaron, when he's questioned about it by Moses as God's representative, he just says, well, they brought me all the gold and I threw it in the fire and this calf just came out. Go figure, who knew that would happen? But the people were so convinced that the things they saw and heard when Moses was up on top of the mountain, they were so terrible. And it was commanded 
before Moses even went up there that not even a beast should be able to set foot on the mountain. There was a perimeter set forth at the base of the mountain. And if an animal did touch it or cross the border or the barrier, then he was to be thrust through with a spear, killed immediately. Now they've seen this with Moses on top of Mount Sinai. And they see it time and time and time again when he goes into the tabernacle. Now what should that mean to them? What would be your reaction if you're one of these people knowing what you know now, understanding what you know of the word, what would you conclude by watching this happen again and again and again? Shouldn't you get some kind of clue that God's on Moses' side? Well, then why do they keep taking signs against him? Why do they come up time and time and time again and murmur against Moses? If we had continued to read in Numbers chapter 15, talks about God's plan for Israel in the wilderness. Chapter 16 talks about how that now it's, some time has passed. According to historians, Numbers 16 is nine years after Numbers 14. And I'm sure there were a lot of things that happened. Certainly there were a lot of things that happened over those nine years. But nine years later, Korah's rebellion takes place. And that's when Korah says to Moses, you're not doing right by us. You're setting yourself over us to rule over us. And that's the only reason that you want us in the wilderness. They blame Moses for not going in and taking the promised land. And they say that the reason behind that or the reason for that is because Moses wanted to lord it over them in the wilderness. He wouldn't have been able to do that in the promised land. Well, that didn't turn out too well. It says that Moses tells everybody to come before the tabernacle the next day. And God would show who he was for and who he wasn't for. Or who he was with, who he favored, and who he didn't. And it tells us how that Korah's family and all those that joined themselves to him were assembled together. And it's, it's almost like one of those Elijah on the, uh, the mountain, Mount Carmel experiences. The God that answers by fire, let him be God. So when Korah stands there with all of his family assembled, Moses says, all right, we're going to see who God's for now. We're going to see who he's with. He said, if these guys died a natural death, if God just struck them and they died in some kind of normal manner, then that wouldn't be any proof to you of who God is for, whose, God, whose side God is on. But Moses said, if the earth opened up and swallowed these people and then come back together, then you'll know that was God, wouldn't you? Well, especially since he's called in the shot beforehand. So the earth opens up, swallows Korah, swallows Korah and all of his families and all those that joined themselves to him. And they're destroyed when the earth comes back together. The next day, the next day, Israel comes out against Moses. 
and said, look what you've done to Korah. And this is one of those times where God says, the Bible says that the pillar of cloud stood in the doorway of the tabernacle of the wilderness to protect Moses and Aaron and those that had joined themselves to Moses and stood on Moses' side. And a plague came through the congregation of Israel. Again, it's one of these near instant things that take place. There were 250 of the princes people of renown that had joined themselves in, with Korah in his rebellion. And those 250 are struck dead instantly. And the Bible says that a plague started going through the camp. And Moses told Aaron, gave Aaron instructions about filling the, the censer, uh, the incense holder thing with fire and running through the camp. And the Bible says that his atonement, the fact that he made an atonement for them, stayed the plague but not until 14,700 of them had died. Now, what had happened overnight to make these people think Moses is at fault? Looks to me like they're stiff-necked people. And that's what they're mourning about here in Exodus 33. They get their feelings hurt because God says, you are a stiff-necked people. They don't make any attempts to change. I guess they were the snowflakes of their day. (laughs) Verse 12, Exodus 33, verse 12. And Moses said unto the Lord, See, thou sayest unto me, Bring up this people. And thou hast not let me know whom thou wilt send with me. Yet thou hast said, I know thee by name, and thou hast also found grace in my sight. This is what God said of Moses. I know Moses by name. And he has found grace or favor in my sight. So Moses said, now therefore I pray thee, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way that I may know thee. Psalm 103, I'm not sure what verse it is, but it says, God made his acts known unto Israel, but his ways known unto Moses. Now, therefore, I pray thee, if I found grace in your sight, show me now your way, that I may know thee, and that I might find grace in thy sight. And consider that this nation is thy people. And God responded and said, My presence shall go with thee, and I will give thee rest. And he said unto him, God, uh, Moses said back unto God, If your presence go not with me, carry us not up hence. In other words, he's saying, If your presence doesn't go, I don't want to go. He's still following the cloud, I guess. Verse 16, notice this one. For wherein shall it be known that I and thy people have found grace in thy sight? Now, folks, I want you to understand something. Moses doesn't have any kind of wrong attitude here. He's not um, rebellious or unbelieving in any way whatsoever. But he asks a question. And here's the question that he asks God. He says... What's the proof that you're with me? And God doesn't say, well, Moses, I thought I'd start over with another nation with you, but now you're like them, questioning me. God doesn't have a problem with the question. That implies to me that there should be some proof of those whom God is with. 
and those who have found favor in his sight. For wherein shall it be known? Here that I and thy people have found grace in thy sight. Is it not in that thou goest with us? So shall we be separated, I and thy people, from all the people that are upon the face of the earth. Moses' understanding, as he communicates in this case, is that God's people, servants under the old covenant, sons and daughters under the new, are separated unto God in such a way that it's supposed to be the proof that God is with us. Would you say that's the earmark of most Christians' lives? I wouldn't. But if this principle that Moses presents to God is true, and it must be because God doesn't try to correct you, then it seems to me that there's lacking in the modern day church the reliance on the presence of God to make a difference between us and all the people of the world. Now, when I talk about the people of the world, I'm not talking about people of other nations in our case. This is not a make America great again speech. But it should be make Christianity great again. I don't know. I know for certain the Holy Ghost hasn't changed. That must be the presence of God that is being referenced here. God doesn't change. That means the Holy Ghost can't change. Jesus never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So why doesn't the modern day church exhibit the proof that Moses had under the old covenant? We ought to at least have that much, shouldn't we? We have a better covenant established upon better promises, which means there's better proof. But we don't even seem to have that proof. And the Lord said unto Moses, I will do this thing also that thou hast spoken, for thou hast found grace in my sight, and I know thee by name. That's basically God saying, I'll do whatever you want me to do. Because you found grace in my sight. Because I do know you by name. Did God know Moses as well as he knows you? Not in the sense that Moses was a spiritually dead man and we're spiritually alive. Not in the sense that he could not have eternal life and we have that. Not in the sense that he had righteousness imputed unto him, counted to his favor. But we've been made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Now, folks, if that relationship through Jesus coming into relationship and fellowship with God, if that doesn't matter, then why did he change the system? If there's not greater benefit for you and me as children of God than what Moses had as a servant of God, then why change the system? Why send Jesus? Why not just let us keep living under the old covenant until the end and then God wipe, wipe things clean or fix it at the end? 
But Jesus made a great distinction between the old covenant, the covenant of death, which had in it a law that was that consisted of 630 different commandments, which nobody could keep. And the whole purpose for the law, as the Bible tells us in the, in the New Testament, the whole purpose for the law was to show us we could not be righteous before God. We could not have right standing before God except on a temporary basis. And that after great caution and care to make a sacrifice of blood. Jesus talked about how much greater it would be after he went to the Father. Well, then what we have should be greater than that, shouldn't it? The Lord said unto Moses, I will do this thing also that thou hast spoken. For thou hast found grace in my sight, and I know thee by name. And Moses said, I beseech thee, show me your glory. This is a guy that sees a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire every day for 40 days or 40 years. He sees the glory of the Lord, the cloud, fill the temple or the tabernacle in his case so that nobody could stand to minister. He saw firsthand through his hands the plagues that God released upon Egypt to deliver his people. He saw a rock split in half by striking it with a stick to pour out enough water to take care of millions of people in their livestock and not run dry. Moses has seen miracle after miracle after miracle. He's endured the time on Mount Sinai. He's been protected over and over again by the, the pillar of cloud when the people murmured against him and, and wanted to take up stones to stone him. And Moses says, show me your glory. How do we interpret that? The only way that I'm satisfied with is that Moses could not get enough of God. Of all the things he's seen, of all the things he's experienced, of all the things that God has done at his own hand, he says, show me your glory. I think this is a parallel scripture or a parallel attitude. As Paul, when he writes to the church and says, the one thing that I care about, putting all the other things aside, forgetting the past, good and bad, the one thing that I want is to know him, to know him, and the fellowship of his sufferings. Well, you remember the story. God said, I will make my goodness pass before thee. Goodness must have something to do with glory. I will make my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy upon whom I will show mercy. And he said, Thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. That's because of the old covenant. That's because the old covenant was a covenant of death. There was no way to escape death. 
there was only provision to cover sin temporarily so you could get by with God. Under the new covenant, however, there's no limitation, there's no restriction on being able to see God pretty much in any way you want to do it. And the Lord said, Behold, there's a place by me, and thou shalt stand upon a rock, and it shall come to pass while my glory passes by, that I will put thee in a cleft of the rock, and will cover thee with my hand while I pass by. And I will take away my hand, and thou shalt see my back parts, but my face shall not be seen. Sounds like God has a form very similar to the human body. Um, well, there's a lot of scripture I want to go to, but I don't have time for it. So let's do this. Why don't you turn with me to Mark chapter 9. Turn with me to two openings, Mark chapter 9 and 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I'll start with 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I think it'll work better if we do it in this order. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 6, Paul is speaking by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost and says, Who also, speaking of God, God also has made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. He's talking about the two covenants, the old covenant and the new covenant. He's saying the old covenant was as much as God could do to cover a man's sins so that he could stand before him and, and God's favor could be upon him. But it was still a covenant of death. But the new covenant is a covenant of the Spirit. Not the letter of the law, but of the Spirit of God who gives life. But if the ministration of death, verse 7, talking about the old covenant, if the ministration of death written and engraven in stones was glorious so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away, how shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? Now, I mentioned a little bit ago about how Moses was on Mount Sinai for 40 days receiving the Ten Commandments in the presence of God. That's where the lightnings and the thunders and the smoke and all the things, terrible things were taking place from a visual standpoint. So that they thought nobody could live through that. Moses does live through that and comes down the mountain bringing the Ten Commandments. He sees that the people are worshiping the golden calf and they're having a, a, a basic... Uh, national orgy taking place around the worship of the golden calf. Moses gets angry and throws the Ten Commandments down, breaks the tablets of stone, signifying that the children of Israel were, had broken the commandments themselves. And you remember that they said to Moses after he's angry and starts railing on everybody and takes care of what he needs to do, he grinds the golden calf into powder sends it back into the fire, grounds it into powder, and throws it into the water and makes the people drink it. But somewhere along the way, the people told Moses, your face is shining. Moses wasn't aware of it, and the people were so afraid, and this might not have been the only time that he was in the presence of God and came back this way. It's just the only one that the Bible identifies specifically. And so they told Moses that his face was shining and they were afraid of his face because of the shining. So they made him put a veil over his head. Put your head in a sack, Moses. You're shining too much. 
and he does. I, I don't, that part I don't get. Seems to me like Moses would have been better off by saying something like, yeah, and you need to be reminded. But the Bible's telling us, Paul is telling us, that if the Old Testament, which could not produce life, it could only cover sins. If the Old Covenant, the commandments of the Old Testament, were such that nobody could keep them, and nobody did until Jesus came along. He's the only human being that ever kept the whole law. And the, the rule of the law is if you break the least of the commandments, it's just, just like breaking them all. It's all or nothing. And so Paul says, if the ministry of death, the commandments, which the only purpose for the law of Moses was to remind the people, to convince the people, you can't do this on your own. You can't come back to God through your own actions or your own behavior. No matter how much you try, no matter how good you try to be, you can't do it yourself. And even that covenant produced a glory that was unmatched by anything else. But his comparison, he says, if the Old Testament was glorious, shouldn't the New Testament, eternal life, the presence of God within us, be more glorious? Now, the example that he uses is, you ought to be able to see the New Covenant on somebody more than you could at Moses with the Old Covenant. There should be more glory, more evidence on us because of what we have that's so much greater than what they had. How shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? For if the ministration of condemnation be glory, much more does the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. Now look with me to Mark chapter 9. Verse 2. And after six days Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up into a high mountain apart by themselves and he was transfigured before them. And his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so that as no fuller or cleaner on the earth can white them. And there appeared unto them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter answered and said unto Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he knew not what to say, for they were sore afraid." And there was a cloud that overshadowed them, and a, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, hear him. And suddenly when they had looked round about, they saw no man anymore, save Jesus only with themselves. Now can I ask you a question? Why is this related to us? Mark tells us, Mark chapter 9 and Luke chapter 9 tell us both the same thing. Very, very few minor details of difference in the two accounts why does the Bible give us this account why did the Holy Ghost want to make sure that we heard of this and it's confirmed by two witnesses so we have to accept it as true it's true because it's the word of God but you know what I mean why is this here wouldn't we all agree that the only purpose it serves is to show us what things were really like Jesus didn't change. Jesus did not become 
more righteous or more obedient to the things of God to cause this event to take place. Instead, it was just that Peter, James, and John's eyes were opened to see to how things really are. Do you understand what I mean by that? See, this is one reason why I believe when Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden, it said when they ate of the, the trees that they were forbidden to eat of, it said then their eyes were opened and they saw they were naked and ashamed. They were ashamed. <laughs> you know the TV show Naked and Afraid? <laughs> naked and Ashamed. Some of those people ought to be ashamed. <laughs> but when the Bible says that they saw that they were naked and they were ashamed, as I've joked before, it's not like clothes fell off of them. They just saw things as they were at that moment. Well, it indicates that things were different than that before. And if the natural state of Jesus living under the old covenant was that he, the glory of God that was upon him was such that it changed his appearance to where he was the brightness of God himself. Wouldn't it stand to reason that that's the way that God made Adam and Eve and the way they were operating in the Garden of Eden before the fall? Makes sense to me. Can't prove it, but you can't disprove it either. So when Jesus is transfigured before them, some people ask, why did this take place? Well, the Bible says in the Old Testament that God does nothing without notifying the prophets first. Moses and Elijah are the two greatest prophets of the Old Covenant. They spake to Jesus and Jesus to them about his decease, his death, impending death, and about what would take place afterwards. Well, where are Moses and Elijah kept at the time that Jesus has owned the earth? Well, they're in Abraham's bosom. So why does God see the importance of having Jesus talk to the old covenant prophets, the two great old covenant prophets? Because they go back to Abraham's bosom and tell everybody, we're getting out of here soon. The Messiah has come. When the Bible says that Jesus, after stripping Satan of the keys of hell and death, it says, after he went into the heart of the earth, he went into Abraham's bosom and led captivity captive and took them into heaven. The preaching of Moses and Elijah just a matter of days before Jesus died has prepared everybody to receive Jesus when he comes and follow him into heaven but that glory that Peter, James and John saw is the way that he really was Finally, turn with me to John chapter 17. I'll close with this. You know what it means when a preacher says he'll close with something? <laughs> Absolutely nothing. I'd really like to read this whole chapter. I'm not sure I have time to do it, so let me start. In verse 1, we'll skip around as we need to. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven. This is Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is just before the Roman soldiers come 
with Judas, and Judas betrays him. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy son that thy son may also glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which you gave me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Now, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, tell us that Jesus stripped himself. King James says he made himself of no reputation. If you look up those words in the Greek, you'll find out that they literally mean that he stripped himself and became obedient to God and came to the earth as a man. Well, what did he strip himself of? He stripped himself of the glory that he had with the Father before the the world was. He laid aside his heavenly power and glory. Now, here's why that's important, folks. So many people in the modern-day church believe that Jesus did the miracles and the healings, the signs and the wonders that he did, all the powerful things that took place in his ministry, that he did all those things because he was the Son of God. Jesus said over and over again, that's not true. He called himself and identified himself as the Son of Man, identified himself as man, by calling himself the son of man, not the son of God. Sixty-five times in the four gospels, Jesus is referred to by one of the two phrases, son of man or son of God. Sixty of them are the son of man. Of the other five, three are in context of one uh, event. Jesus always, basically, always called himself the son of man. So if Jesus didn't operate on the earth and do signs and wonders and miracles because he was the son of God and see if he did do it because he was the son of God, then that would mean we didn't have any opportunity to do the same works as he did. We weren't with the father before the world was. We didn't have heavenly power and glory to lay aside. But when Jesus came to the earth as a man and God anointed him with the Holy Ghost, he's operating on the earth, doing the signs and wonders and miracles by the glory of God given to a righteous man who's anointed to do a work that God sent him to do. We see, that covers us too. But the point I want you to see is that Jesus was not operating on the earth by his own admission. He was not operating on the earth by the glory of God that he had with the Father before the creation of the world. In other words, he wasn't operating under Son of God glory. He's operating under Son of Man glory. That's why he made a specific point in many cases to tell what the Old Testament said about the Lord being upon him, the Spirit of the Lord being upon him and anointing him. See, as children of God, you and I can be anointed too. And now, Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. I have manifested your name unto the men which you gave me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept my word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. For I have given unto them the words which you gave me. 
and they have received them and have known surely that I came out from thee and they have believed that thou didst send me. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me for they are thine. And all mine are thine and thine are mine and I am glorified in them. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world and I come to thee. Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me that they may be one as we. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me have I kept and none of them is lost but the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. And now I come to thee and these things I speak in the world that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them thy word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou should take them out of the world, but that thou should keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Notice Jesus makes no distinction between his position with God and the position of God that we attain by receiving him and being born again. No difference whatsoever. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. The word sanctify means to separate. You remember back in Exodus chapter 33 when Moses is asking God, you've told me that, I, that you know me by name. You said that I have grace, found grace in your sight, but you haven't told me who's going to go with me. You told me to take the people up, but you haven't told me who's going to go with me. You remember Moses, we made a point of it when we were looking at it. Moses made the, the statement by saying, for what should be the, tr- the, the proof that we are you or yours? What should be the proof that we are of you except that you separate us from the other nations of the world? Well, according to what Jesus is saying, we are separated by the word. Now, God's intent was the word of God to mean everything that pertains to eternal life. But you know as well as I do that the modern day church has created a buffet where they take the parts they like and leave the parts they don't. So there's a lot of the modern day church that have been sanctified and separated unto God and unto eternal life because they believe that part of what Jesus paid the price for. But the part about healing and provision, some of those other things, they'll just set aside and say, well, we don't want that. So maybe it would be fair for us to say, you judge this for yourself. Maybe it would be fair to say that we are sanctified under the Father in every respect that we believe his word. And in every aspect of God's word that we reject, we're not really separated. Doesn't mean we lose our salvation. Doesn't mean we don't go to heaven. But it means we live life as normal human beings rather than new creatures in him. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Neither pray I for these alone, meaning the twelve, but for them also which shall believe on me through through their word. That's us. That they all may be one, Here's what he's praying. That we all may be one 
as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. And the glory, verse 22, and the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. We know that that's not the glory that he had with the Father before the world was, was created, before the world began. So what glory is that? That's the anointing of the Holy Ghost that's available to those that have been made righteous through the blood of Jesus. He said that's the, that's the power that we have. He said that's the glory of God available to us. Well, shouldn't that glory be seen? Shouldn't that glory be evidenced? Shouldn't there be some proof of that glory? This is greater glory than Moses had. This is greater glory than Moses witnessed through the signs and wonders and miracles. This is greater glory than what Moses said there should be proof of in our lives that you've separated us unto yourself. Shouldn't this glory have some evidence too? Well, it sure did in Jesus' life. It sure did in Jesus' ministry. And that's why Jesus told us that we'd do the same works that he did. Because he was going to the Father. Because he was making a way. His going to the Father made a way for you to be joined together with God the Father just as he was joined together with God the Father. And remember, that's the place where everybody wanted to kill Jesus when he said, I and my Father are one. When he said, the works that I do, I don't do of myself, I do of my Father. That's when they, the Jews tried to take up stones, wanted to kill him repeatedly because he's saying that it's God in him that's doing the works well shouldn't God in us be doing the same works that's what Jesus prayed how effective is Jesus prayer life remember where we started the people of Israel murmured against Moses and, and uh, God and said that they couldn't take the promised land. Moses has to pray for God to pardon them for their actions. And God says, I have pardoned according to your word, Moses. And this is my paraphrase. I believe this is what he's trying to communicate. But don't think for a minute that the glory of God will not be seen and known in all the earth. God said that it would be. Will it be? God said, as truly as I live, eternal unchanging truth, as truly as I live, this shall be. Well, folks, if Jesus' life and ministry are the pattern or the example for what the glory of God looks like filling the earth, and I believe it has to be, if not that, what? then what is the glorious church that Jesus is coming back for going to look like? Jesus said we would be known by our fruit. Concerning this issue, we, the last day church, 
should be known by the works of Jesus that are taking place to us. Folks, I can't get away from this, and this is what really got me started on this recently. God doesn't have a problem revealing himself. But our mindset so often is that we're trying to talk God into doing something. We're trying to talk God into moving. We're trying to talk God into manifesting himself. We're trying to talk him into using his power. When the glory of the Lord's already given to us. In the Old Testament, I believe it's an example, a type or a shadow perhaps. When Moses comes to the Red Sea, he tells the people, be calm. God will take care of this. And he goes to God and says, what are we going to do? And the Lord says, what are you crying unto me for? Which I've always said seems the perfect place for Moses to be asking God what to do. But the point is, God's telling Moses, you're the one I picked. You're the one I anointed. You do something about what you need done. So Moses stretched forth his hand and the rod across the water and the Red Sea divided. God did his part by moving the pillar of cloud between him and the, between Israel and the Egyptian army. Held them at bay just by being. He didn't have to fight. He didn't throw arrows or spears at them. God just was in that one location. And it held the greatest army on the face of the earth at bay. Until Israel could walk across, walk through the Red Sea on dry land. I believe that's an example of what we're supposed to do too. We make so much of it about God give me power to do this. Or God use your power to do that. When we need to realize that we've already been anointed and sent. And created, recreated. To do the works of Jesus in the earth. You can't ever find Jesus stopping to pray about who to heal. You can't ever find Jesus stopping to pray about where to use his power. You can't ever find Jesus stopping to check with God about the use of the anointing power of God that was given to him. He just used it. And folks, that is the one thing, the one thing that I think is necessary to change the modern day church from what we look like now to us living lives like Jesus lived on the earth. Knowledge of the word, knowledge of the truth, knowledge of who we are in Christ, that's all important. I'm taking all that for granted, which numerically few people do or few people know about. But establishing a foundation that we know who we are in Christ and know what the Bible says we should be, who we've been made, the determination, the understanding, the revelation that we have the power of God already. John said we do. John said we, the greater one's in, on the inside of us and we've already overcome the world. When we come to act on that, it won't take long to reach the world. The only thing that limited Jesus to reaching the world that he was in when he came to the earth was transportation. We pretty much got that knocked. Can you imagine a church 
going to or existing in all four corners of the earth doing the works of Jesus? What is the devil going to have to match that? He has less power now than he had over Jesus. As truly as I live, God said, the earth shall be filled with my glory. Let's pray. Father, we see your word. With our limited understanding, we see that there's so much more that the church should be doing than what we are doing. So we don't ask you for power. Your word says we already have that. We pray as Paul prayed. That you would grant unto us. The spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you. That the eyes of our understanding, our spiritual understanding would be opened. So that we would know what is the hope of your calling. And what are the exceeding riches of your grace your glory that belongs to us and that we would know the power the exceeding greatness of your power that works in us as believers father we pray that you would open our eyes to what we're called to do what belongs to us and the exceeding greatness of the power of God that resides in us that we might do your will here on the earth that we might be the church of the Lord Jesus Christ doing the same works that he did, operating in the same power that he had, equipped with the same word, and accompanied by the same Holy Spirit. Father, we ask for these things not just for ourselves. Although it's a, it's a right thing, it's a good thing to want to experience the power of God in its fullest. But our desire, Father, is to use this power to reach the lost. To use this miracle working power, presence of God, the very presence of God himself. To bring people to know you. That's our prayer. That's our prayer. You told us in your word, Father, that if we would ask of you, you'd give us the heathen for an inheritance. You would bring the unsaved into your family. We're asking. And we pray, Father, that you would stir in us a desire, ever-increasing desire, to reach more and more people, to be more and more conformed to the image of Christ, and more and more a vessel for his power to be seen and known. You said if we'd ask, you'd give it to us. So we ask you, in Jesus' precious name. Holy Spirit, we need your help. These things are good for us to want. But there's an apprehension about things that we don't know. And our knowledge at best is limited on how things should be and how things operate. So we thank you for being our teacher, for being our guide, 
Guide us into all reality. Guide us into the reality that we are the body of Christ here on the earth. That we are the hands and the feet. Destined and ordained to operate and to manifest the glorious power of God. And we thank you in advance for doing it. We thank you for bringing us in step by step by step into the fullness of the work that you've given us to do. And we'll give you all the praise and the glory and the honor for everything that's done, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's all stand. Let's lift our hands and thank God for his goodness. Father, you've been so good to us. You are so good to us. You're only good to us. We thank you for making available to us everything that we need to defeat the power of the enemy in our own lives and to help deliver others. We love you, Father. We worship you, Lord Jesus, for all that you've done for us. We magnify your holy name. And we say that we believe and shall see the whole earth filled with your glory. In Jesus' name. If you can agree with that, say amen. 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 Praise the Lord. Well, God bless you. Thank you for being with us. Come back tonight and be with us for healing school if you can. Don't forget 4th of July is on Wednesday, so there won't be a Wednesday night service. We love you. God bless you. Have a great day.